0: We are continuing our progress through the patristic era of church history in our Forerunners of the Faith curriculum, and today we are going to wrap up this first chapter in that section. Um, The two main subjects that we're going to be looking at today are uh, the Didache, which we'll talk about that right off the bat after we open up with some scripture reading and pray. And last uh, subject we're going to discuss from this particular section of the Patristic Era, uh, uh, section of Forerunners of the Faith, is Epistle to Diognetus or Letter to Diognetus. That'll probably be uh, the last half of the last few moments of our lesson this morning. So looking forward to getting through the second century of church history and seeing what the Lord has in store for us as we continue our study of this curriculum I'm going to open this up in a word of prayer, and after I open this up in prayer, I do need a volunteer to read from the book of Deuteronomy. Would anyone like to read Deuteronomy chapter 11, verses 13 to 21? Any takers? I see Ellie opening up her Bible. Are you going to take that one? Very good. All right, let me pray. Get us start. uh, Verses uh, 13 to 21, chapter 11. So let me pray, and then, um, Ellie, you can read that as soon as we get done praying, and there'll be a group discussion question uh, just to kick us off after reading that section from Deuteronomy. But let's go to the Lord. Father, it's a joy to be back this morning with dear brothers and sisters in Christ of all ages and all walks of life. I thank you for them and for The work you've already done in their lives to bring them to this point of their physical and spiritual growth. I pray, Lord, for rich blessings upon them and their family as they continue through 2022 and and strive to be good stewards of everything that you've entrusted unto them. I pray, Father, that you would continue to draw them near to you to deeper levels of personal intimate fellowship through the study of your word through prayer and through gathering with your people to be encouraged to love and good deeds i pray as well father for this lesson this morning that it would be a means of attaining those ends to help us to to help us to be further conformed into the likeness of jesus christ to help us behold you in your glory with greater degrees And, God, that we would be uh, transformed as we leave this place to go back to uh, the tasks and responsibilities that you've called us to do on a week-to-week basis. We pray that this time of discussion and reflection on your word would be pleasing in your sight. And we commit it to you this morning in the name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. All right, Ellie, go ahead and read that passage. 13 through 21, yeah. quick guys the next few verses are going to be what our question is going to focus on so really pay attention uh, these next few verses that ellie's going to read
1: Your days and the days
0: of your children may be multiplied in the land. Then the voice for to your fathers to give them as on the heavens are above the earth. Very good. So that section comes in a broader narrative of Moses uh, directing the people of Israel before they enter into the promised land of Canaan. Now, the particular verses from that section, I just wanted to read that. That little snippet, it's, it's a unit of thought, so I couldn't just isolate the verses that I wanted to focus on uh, for the sake of context. But verses 18 to 21 um, demonstrate to us the practice of what has historically been known as catechesis. Now, that word catechesis simply means the practice of educating or training up somebody in knowledge, training somebody up in knowledge. That's the, the, the most basic definition. Catechesis and as it pertains to the people of Israel, Moses is instructing the Israelites to take everything that he has been saying. Moses is the spokesperson for God, take everything that he's been saying, and as it were, put them in front of your eyes and consume them in your mind as frequently and often as you can do so. He he talks about impressing his words of instruction on the heart and soul, he talks about putting them uh, literally in front of your forehead. So it's constantly in your focus and constantly in your mind at all times. Talks about taking these words and writing them down and putting them on the doorpost of the people's homes. Um, all that to say, this act of training up people in knowledge was very important to the nation of Israel, particularly training up people in the knowledge of God. And that's exactly what we're doing here this morning in Sunday school. Um, and of course, what we do on, on uh, our midweek ministries, and during Sunday morning worship as well, as we are in the process of being trained up in knowledge about our faith, knowledge about God, knowledge about uh, what he expects of us, knowledge about how we should live our lives, and so on. Um, but my question for you, just in light of, of giving you that brief overview and hopefully giving you some some substance to chew on this morning, what value do you believe comes from being intentional in this act of catechesis or catechizing people, training people up in knowledge, what value comes from that, specifically in reference to our Christian faith? What do you think the value of catechesis, the value of educating believers, what value comes from that? And just something that you guys may be familiar with, just to kick off the discussion. What value comes in training up a new football player and how they should play the sport? Oh, for football? Okay, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to build up to this. I want these guys to think through this. I'm going to wake them up with something they like. But Lisa, I'm coming back to you. Okay. Okay. So if I don't know how to play football... And, I need to, and what is the first thing I need to know if I'm going to be able to play football? Position. I need to know my position. I need to know the rules, right? Yes. I need to be educated on those things. And then I need to also you know, train, work out, um, actually run the plays that I'm going to be running at my respective position and so on. What about, um, what about math or science? Does anybody just walk into a classroom and automatically know a subject? No, right? You don't walk in someday and you're just an expert in algebra or in chemistry or in history. You've got to learn it, right? You've got to be trained. You've got to be educated. Now, Lisa's going to tell us what the value of being educated is in reference to Christianity. I've just given you some real examples with sports and with school. Lisa, what do you think?
1: Just keeps going. But you have to be knowledgeable. I
0: don't know to study the word yeah. so that it's future. It's future planning, not go right here now. It's yeah. a long term goal that I won't see. It's well said. Um, you know. Christianity, our faith, it is a lifelong journey of education and then taking what we know and passing it on to the next generation so they can do the same. It's that 1 Timothy two two principle when Paul tells Timothy, I want you to take what you've heard and I want you to go and take that knowledge and pass it down to godly men who you're going to train up to be the next generation of leadership in the local church, and then they're going to go and take that knowledge, and they're going to go and do the same. They're going to go find other godly people, and they're going to educate them and train them up in that knowledge so they can take over, and it's just a continual domino effect. It's a, it's a long chain that continues on until Jesus Christ returns for his own. Um, and, that, and that's really what I want you guys to take away from this first um, topic that we're going to be discussing today. It's a manual of early Christian ethics called the Didache. So if you have your workbook, that first blank there under Roman numeral five, you can fill it in as Christian ethics. This is in reference to the Didache, which was a late first or early, or early second century um, manual of Christian teaching, of of Christian education, or of Christian catechesis, whatever term you want to use there. Um, The word didache, it literally means either the teaching or it can mean the doctrine. Uh, When when it's used in the New Testament, that, that Greek term didache literally means doctrine. So when we're speaking of the Didache, we're, we're trying to think of basic Christian teaching or basic Christian doctrine that the early church would have been committed to learning and applying to their lives and ultimately sharing with others so they could follow suit. Um, as Boosnitz notes here, the Didache is also known by a more complete title, and I, I can see why they would want to shorten it up a bit, the teaching of the Lord, The twelve apostles to the nations. So, obviously, the didache works a little bit better uh, for a more succinct and and short title. But the teaching of the Lord through the twelve apostles to the nations or to the world. The purpose of the didache was to explain the way that believers are to live as followers of Jesus. It was not written by an apostle or under apostolic authorization and is therefore not part of our New Testament canon, but nonetheless, in church history, The didache was recognized as a summary of apostolic teaching. So think of it this way, guys. A good way of looking at the didache would be looking at something like a doctrinal statement, right? So the didache its not part of the New Testament, was not written by an apostle, was not written under the direct supervision of an apostle, but the didache is consistent with the teachings of the apostles. It's consistent with the teaching of Scripture. So we find value in the didache, we recognize that insofar as it's accurately reflecting the Word of God, it should be read, studied, and applied, but we, we don't hold it as binding on anybody to, um, to believe as, as infallible or without error. It's like with any doctrinal statement or any resource we would use today as Christians to enable ourselves to better understand God's word or better understand how we should live in X, Y, or Z situation. And if I just may say this briefly by way of parenthesis here, um, you know, a lot of, I think we talked about this last week even, but a lot of Christians, well-meaning Christians, and even critics of Christianity, they want to say that You know, doctrine just really wasn't something that was important to the early church. It it was kind of a free-for-all. They kind of just figured it out as they went along. It wasn't until later that the church began to formulate doctrinal understandings of their faith, and that's just not the case. We saw last week from Polycarp, and we saw the previous week um, from Ignatius, that these men were committed from the earliest, uh, from the earliest part after uh, Jesus went and, uh, resur- and was resurrected and ascended into heaven. These men were committed to sound doctrine. Clement of Rome, Ignatius of Antioch, Polycarp of Smyrna, um, and here, the Didache, who we, we don't know who wrote it, but we do know it was utilized by the earliest Christians to be trained up in basic Bible knowledge, basic Christian doctrine, it's just clear that Christians from the very beginning have always sought to understand the things of God and articulate those truths in a way that they could commonly share, in a way they could commonly understand and talk about. So that's why we're having Sunday school classes, and that's why we do what we do in the middle of the week. That's why It's important for churches to have doctrinal statements and discipleship courses. It's simply so that, like the purpose of the didache, we can take what the Bible teaches, put it into our own words, summarize it, and then help us to share it with others and apply its truths to our lives. We don't recognize any doctrinal statement as binding we don't recognize any doctrinal statement or Christian teaching as authoritative, right? Only the Bible is infallible and inerrant and authoritative for the Christian life. But insofar as these resources are true, insofar as they are consistent with the Word of God, we recognize that they have value and that uh, they can be of great use to the Christian life. Anybody have any questions about any of this um, introductory uh, introduction statements before we we move on a little bit into some of these excerpts from the Didache. Any questions or comments? Okay. Well, I think I'm going to say, Ashton, if you want to read that first paragraph here, I'm going to just give you the preface. The Didache begins with a section on the two ways, the way of life, which is in reference to the Christian life and the way of death, much of this section is drawn from the teachings of Jesus. And Ashton's going to read the paragraph from the Didache that's included in your workbooks that should give us some good scripture references to consider and show you that this is ultimately consistent with what the Bible teaches, particularly in the New Testament. Yeah, that very, uh, it, it should be, wait, does it start with these are, or excuse me, there are two ways. Does it start that way? Yeah, go ahead and read that. Good. So as we've done the last few weeks, anytime we read excerpts from a figure or from a resource in church history, it's important for us to go back to scripture and say, how does the Bible line up with this? Or how does it not line up with this statement or with this figure's belief? So as we continue that model here, I want us to think just in light of that section we just read from the did. Okay. What biblical passages do you hear allusions to or maybe even explicit um, quotes from? What, what Bible passages do you think correspond with this excerpt from the dead? K. Okay, do you have any off the top of your heads? I, I wrote down three, and Michael? It's exactly right. Matthew seven twelve, the golden rule, you know, the very last sentence there. Whatever you do not wish to happen to you, do not do to another. Inverse that. Do unto others as you would have them do unto you. Right. Very good, Michael. Cy, did you find one or think of one? I did,
1: but I can't think of an actual passage. Okay.
0: What? What? What principle? Love your, as Love your neighbor as yourself. Does anybody remember the context of we of where we find that command? Who gave that command? First off, Jesus. Right. did in Matthew it's a, A good, that's, a, that's a good guess, and I, I think there's, I think that principle's is clearly taught in Sermon hey, on the Mount. Uh, he's being challenged um, because they ask, well, what's the greatest commandment? It's, it is in the context of, of being challenged by religious leaders. Matthew 22. Teacher,
1: teacher, what is the greatest commandment? Yeah, that's it. I don't
0: know what word for it. I just know read it. But yeah. That's right.
1: Uh, here it is, 30, teacher, which is the greatest commandment in the law? Jesus replied, "Love the Lord your God with all your heart, and with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. And the
0: second is like it: love your neighbor as yourself." Hmm. That's right. Um, and, and notice what Christ does is he takes, he takes two explicit texts from the Old Testament. He says this is the sum, the sum and the substance of the entire of the Old Testament. If you, if you can model these truths, these commandments in your life, then you're going to fulfill the entirety of the law. Um, and theologians throughout history have recognized, um, if you look at the Ten Commandments, the first four commandments correspond to loving God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. If you love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, commandments one through four are going to be naturally kept in your life. If you love your neighbor as yourself, commandments five through ten will be kept in your life. Um, that's an interesting little nugget there. So from that very first paragraph, we've we've seen Matthew 22, 36 to 40, we've seen Matthew 712. Uh, Matthew 712 uh, was the reference to the golden rule, as Michael pointed us to earlier. Uh, I had one more, though, and it, it comes from the first two sentences. T- speaking of two ways of life, one way of life, one way of death. Do you ever, have you ever read in the Gospels Jesus referring to different paths? The narrow. Narrow and the broad, right? I'll just pull that up. Matthew 7, 13, and 14. Enter through the narrow gate, for the gate is wide, and the way is broad that leads to destruction, and there are many who enter through it. For the gate is small, and the way is narrow that leads to life, and there are few who find it. So um, I'm sure there's more allusions there that we could pick up on, but I think those three texts are, are certainly explicitly alluded to in this section from the Didache. Now there's a second excerpt. And as Busnitz notes, this uh, really pertains to our modern evangelical landscape because it specifically references abortion as being murder, likens abortion to committing the act of murder. Who would like to read that? Who has a book? Um, Lauren, you want to take that one? Uh, it's the, uh, it just says the okay and, and next to it it says the second commandment of the teaching. So just that, that uh, paragraph, if you don't mind. The second commandment of the
1: teaching is you shall not murder, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not corrupt children, you shall not be sexually immoral, you shall not steal, you shall not practice magic, you shall not engage in sorcery, you shall not abort a child or commit infanticide
0: Very good. Okay, so a lot there, and I think there really are some passages that maybe not word for word correspond with this paragraph but they certainly are consistent with what's being said um, think about passages that you can think of even if you can't give the exact uh, name of the book chapter and verse where do you, where do you find instruction against sexual immorality um, stealing lying What's that? Yeah, Ten Commandments, certainly. This one's going to be a little bit more of a challenge. Let me just go ahead and give you some passages to read. Yeah, that's, that's definitely one of them. Go, Lisa, pull up Galatians 5, verses 19 through 21. It is a, it's a very clear reference uh, to, to what we're reading here in this section of the Didache. There's a lot of overlap there. good. And notice that those who live like this or those who practice these lifestyles doesn't mean that if you fall into that sin, you know, in your life at some point, even as a believer, that doesn't mean that you're not going to heaven. It doesn't mean that you're saved by your works, but it does mean that if your lifestyle is characterized by any of those sinful traits, any of those sinful lifestyle behaviors, if that is your life, That is your life's definition, as it were. That's how you can be known. It just shows that your heart hasn't been changed, and you're not a believer, right? Your lifestyle is a reflection of what's in your heart. Your actions are the fruit of your heart, whether it is uh, regenerate or unregenerate. So, Lisa, thank you for that passage. I'm going to have a few others read because there I think there's at least three more that I could find that are consistent with what we just read in the in the Did First Corinthians chapter six, verses nine and ten. So I go ahead and take that one. Revelation 21, verses 7 and 8. Your, uh, yours is uh, verses 6, or excuse me, verses 9 and 10 of chapter 6 of 1 Corinthians. Ellie, you want to take the Revelation 21? Revelation 21, 7 and 8. And I'll take the last text, just one verse, Revelation 22, verse 15, and and pretty consistent with what John writes in just the previous chapter, which Ellie's going to read for us. So, Sai, whenever you're ready, read that text for us, please. See the overlap there with the Didache passage we read just a few moments ago? Pretty consistent, right? How do take the Revelation passage? Very good. And I'll read that last verse that I mentioned. It's consistent with what Ellie just said. Outside of the um, new heavens and the new earth, um, or I should say outside of the uh, new Jerusalem and the new heavens and the new earth, uh, are the dogs and the sorcerers and the immoral persons and the murderers, the idolaters, and everyone who loves and practices lying. So you guys see that? There are lifestyle traits that time and time again throughout the New Testament, we are told that they are not characteristic of a believer. Believers may fall into those sin patterns um, periodically um, or, or maybe one time and, and, and then they repent and then they might, they might struggle with that sin over the course of their Christian life, but it's not a repeated, ongoing struggle. Um, it's not something that their lifestyle can be defined by um, or identified with. That, that's the difference between someone who's been saved, somebody who may struggle with a sin but repents and, and hates that sin and tries to flee from it, versus somebody who lives in that pattern of sin. They don't repent. They have no desire to break loose from it because they enjoy it, because they uh, don't want to live under the authority of God. They want to live to satisfy their own lusts and their own sinful desires. Um, very important for us as we think about our own lifestyle. It's very important for us to ensure that we're putting to death the deeds of the flesh and that we are striving to bear the fruit of the Spirit um, as the Holy Spirit enables us to do so. But with that in mind, continuing here in my teacher's guide, it it stated from Dr. Busnitz that um, in addition to ethical matters, the Didache also gives us instruction for church practice, addressing topics anywhere from baptism to how the Lord's Supper should be celebrated and uh, how to handle uh, church leadership. How do we interact with leaders in the local church? A lot of good topics in the Didache. I'm pretty sure you can access it online. So if you're ever wanting to read through it from start to finish, it should be available online. You can look at that free of charge. If I'm not mistaken, you might have to buy it. It's probably cheap on Amazon (laughs) if it's not absolutely free online. But nevertheless... Uh, There's a discussion question here, a discussion question, and it should be in your workbooks as well. It starts out, uh, read Matthew 7, 13, and 14, and we we read that earlier. It's when Jesus talks about you have um, the narrow path, which leads to the narrow gate, which leads to life, versus the broad path and the broad gate, which leads to destruction. So we read that earlier, Matthew 7, 13, and 14. And the rest of the discussion question box says this. It says the didache emphasizes the difference between those on the narrow way and those on the broad way. Again, consistent with what Christ does in the Gospels. If you were to describe the attitudes and actions that should characterize those on the way that leads to life, which things would you emphasize? And I kind of gave you that answer, but to make sure that you're paying attention and that you're grasping these concepts that we're discussing. What could be said of somebody who walks on the way or the path that leads to life? What's their lifestyle marked by, identified with, characterized by, whatever... Adjective you want to use to describe such a person. So, si, what do you think? Prayer. Prayer, yeah. Prayer is certainly uh, going to be a trait or a lifestyle pattern that is true of somebody walking on the way that leads to life on that narrow path. But big picture, guys. Christ-like. Yeah. Explain that, Charlie. They're going to act more like Christ. Yeah, they're gonna, they're gonna put Christ's character on display. Now what is that what does that presuppose? If somebody's putting Christ's character on display, what are they not doing on a regular habitual basis? Or I should say or if I could say it like this, um, what happens when sin appears in such a person's life? They repent, they repent right? That's key. Guys, the the difference between a Christian and non-Christian is, is, is not so much the absence of sin, although you know, believers certainly should sin less than non-believers. That, that's definitely true. But we're still going to sin, right? We're still going to fall short of the glory of God. So in recognizing that, it may be a little bit easier for us to conceptualize this difference between the believer and the non-believer in this way. It's not the question of, will you sin? You're going to sin. But it's a question of what do you do when you're made aware of sin in your life? Is your natural instinct to repent and ask for God's forgiveness and ask for God's grace to help you overcome that sin in your life, or is your natural inclination to, you know, just kind of say, "Well, yeah, I know that's what the Bible says. I know it's wrong, and I know this is sin. But hey, you know, nobody's perfect. I, I and I, I kind of like this, so." It's not really hurting anybody. I guess I'm going to continue doing this. What's the the desire of your heart? I'm speaking to myself, too. When you're made aware of sin, do you repent of that sin? Do you mourn that sin? Do you ask God to give you the grace to overcome that sin? Or do you just kind of say, well, I, I really don't care? That's the difference between one being saved and one not being saved. The Christian, even if it's for a season, eventually... Every true Christian will recognize that they are, when they are in sin, they will recognize that when they are in sin, they need to turn away from that sin. They need to flee from it. They need to give that to the Lord, and He, trusting that He will give them the grace to overcome it by His Spirit. And that's why community is so important, my friends. That's why we need to be surrounding ourselves with godly men and women to hold us accountable, to encourage us as we walk this Christian life, and to ensure that uh, God is being glorified in all that we do. So with that in mind, does anybody have any questions about anything we've discussed in reference to the didache before we move forward? Okay. Well, now this is the last main subject that is in this section of the patristic era um, part of our workbook. Roman numeral 6, labeled the epistle or the letter to Diognetus. We don't know when it was written exactly. Most historians believe it was likely composed in the mid to late 2nd century. So it would have been no later than 200 AD. So again, this is all within the first 100 years after the death of the apostles. Busnitz, in our teacher's guide notes that this is one of the most famous patristic documents that we've ever discovered. It was a letter written by an anonymous author who simply identifies himself as mathetes, which is the Greek word for disciple. The letter, the epistle to Diognetus, is addressed to someone. Who do you think it was addressed to? Epistle to Diognetus, right? So it was written... Uh, to someone named Diognetus, and some have suggested that this letter was written to a tutor of the Roman emperor Marcus Aurelius, who had the same name, um, which, if that's the case, Marcus Aurelius reigned as the emperor of Rome from 161 to 180 AD, so that would fit with when most historians estimate that this letter was originally written. But we can't be sure about that connection. And if you have your workbook, there's two blanks in this next... um, section here that I want to give you. Buznitz notes that the epistle to Diognetus provides a beautiful presentation of the good news of salvation through Jesus Christ. Writing to a non-believer, the author explains that in Christ, sinners can find both the forgiveness for sin and eternal life. Those are your two blanks. First blank is forgiveness for sin And the second blank is eternal life. Now, Ellie, I saved the big section for you. Wait, have you read? I feel like you've already read. No, you read scripture earlier. Yeah, so you get to read this large paragraph. See, guys, that's what happens when you bring your book to class. You have to read. So uh, I think that's probably why you guys like to leave your books at home. Um, At least that's what I'm going to tell myself. Anyways, um, Ellie, read that extended section. From the Epistle to Diognetus. And and guys, let me just say this. This paragraph, if you're going to pay attention to anything we read from church history in this patristic age section of our book, zero in on this section. It's rich, so rich with truths about the glory of the gospel. Ellie, take it away. Very good. So, I want us to. I mean, we could spend a whole class on on just this paragraph, and I wish we could. Unfortunately, we we got to move on. But I, I want us to pause and zero in on that. Let's see what line is that? One, two, three, four, five, six. So from the sixth line, notice. He himself, right? You see it there? About midway through that paragraph. He himself and down to the end of the paragraph. There's a lot of um I don't want to give the answer away by how I asked the question. So let me let me just let me read some of those phrases again and then I want you guys to answer this question to see how well you've been tracking with uh, The subject that's being taught here, because this is a subject, a reality, a theological truth that we've talked about extensively over the past few months. Um, God gave his own son as a ransom for us, the holy one for transgressors, the blameless one for the wicked, the righteous one for the unrighteous, the incorruptible one for the corruptible, the immortal one for them that are mortal. Our sins are covered by His righteousness. The wicked and ungodly are justified by the only Son of God. O sweet exchange, O unsearchable operation, O benefit surpassing all expectation, that the wickedness of many should be hid in a single righteous one, and that the righteousness of one should justify many transgressors. What is that truth? What is it, Ellie? Double imputation. And really... What, what, if you had to just summarize it very, very simply, best you can. doesn't have to. Don't think you've got to give just a systematic theology answer. But what's being taught there? Um, when
1: Christ
0: died on the cross, he took our sin and put it on him. Yeah. He took his righteousness Yep. So so our sin was imputed, credited to Christ, and his righteousness is credited or given to us. And, and, and how does that exchange take place? What's the means? What yeah, well, okay. That's, um, that is the uh, grounds of our justification. But how does it? How does it actually? How does Christ's righteousness get to me? For right, and what? And what do we do when we ask for forgiveness? Yeah. What are we? Ex- what are we exercising? Maybe. Faith. Faith is faith is the instrument or the means whereby Christ's righteousness is imputed to the believer and the believer's unrighteousness is imputed to Christ. God's grace is the grounds, it's the source, right? But faith is that, is that channel or that means, that instrument of Christ's righteousness coming to me, the believer, and my unrighteous going to Jesus at the cross. Very good, Ellie. I'm very proud of you. Um, double imputation. And, and this is different, this, just so you guys can see why this matters so much. Protestants teach... That we are declared righteous before God, not by our own righteousness, but by the righteousness of Jesus Christ. It's an alien righteousness, a foreign righteousness, a righteousness that exists outside of us, but's granted to us as a free gift received by faith. Roman Catholics, on the other hand, this is why the Reformation matters, Roman Catholics teach that man is justified through infusion. So Protestants believe justification is by imputation, double imputation. Roman Catholics believe it's by infusion. That is that God's grace must be infused into the sinful soul so that that sinful soul can be purified of the residue of sin. How does infusion take place? It takes place through the sacraments, baptism, confession, the mass, and so on. So very different understandings of justification when you compare Roman Catholicism with Protestantism. For the Roman Catholic, you're only as justified, you're only as righteous as you are holy, as you are sanctified. So I'm only as right before God, according to Rome, as that grace of God that's been infused into my soul has taken away that residue of my fallen nature. Protestants, on the other hand, believe no, I am absolutely righteous in the sight of God at the moment I come to faith because the perfect righteousness of Jesus Christ has been given to me as a free gift, and my unrighteousness was paid for in full at the cross. This is the heart of Protestantism, it's the heart of the gospel. Very important stuff here. Now, what text? So, we've talked a lot about doctrine, right? And and doctrine is great, it's important, but. It's only as great as it is biblical, right? We've got to make sure that our doctrine is rooted and grounded in the word of God, not just in, in faithful men uh, or church history. Let's go to the scripture and see how this reality is taught. Four texts. There's many others, but four texts that clearly teach the theological truth that we just saw here in the epistle to Diognetus, uh, that theological concept called double imputation. Romans five eighteen and 19. Sai, you want to read that one? Thank you, buddy. 2 Corinthians 5.21. Who wants to take that? Wit. Thanks, bud. Philippians 3, verses 8 and 9. Who'd like to take that one? Jacob. And 1 Peter 3.18. Lily, thank you so much. So, guys, again, when we read these texts, you're going to notice something. And this is important, too. It's very important for you guys to keep in mind. The word double imputation is nowhere in any of these passages, Does that mean that double imputation is not true then? The word Trinity is not in the Bible, but does that mean that the Trinity is not real? That God's not three persons who eternally exist as one God? Of course not, right? We're looking to see if the concept is taught in the Bible, and this terminology, these theological categories help us better explain and make sense of what the Bible teaches. So just because a word or a phrase isn't used in the Bible doesn't mean that it's not true, and it certainly doesn't mean that we shouldn't use those terms to explain what the Bible teaches. Cy, whenever you're ready, take us away in Romans 5, 18 and 19.
1: one man's
0: disobedience, the many made sinners. Even through the obedience of the one, the many will be made righteous. Amen. So right, you see, one transgression, or um, most people who comment on the book of Romans recognize Paul summarizing um, the totality of, um, of of Adam's sinfulness, his, his sin in the Garden of Eden. What that did is it brought condemnation to all men, but through Christ. Perfect life of obedience. That act of righteousness has resulted in justification of life to all men. So you've got a parallel, or, or maybe better said, a um, a juxtaposition between Adam's act of sin, Christ's act of righteousness. Verse nineteen: Adam's disobedience, Christ's obedience, and the outcome, of course, is disobedience led to condemnation obedience led to righteousness, right? And then how do we make sense of that juxtaposition? How do the the unrighteous become righteous? As we talked about earlier, it's through faith alone. Faith alone. My unrighteousness goes to Jesus, His righteousness comes to me. 2 Corinthians 5.21, this might be the most clear other than 1 Peter 3.18, very clear text for double imputation
1: him sin to be sin on our behalf so that we might become the righteousness
0: of God in him. I mean that, that is clear as day. the sinless one Jesus Christ was made sin on our behalf. He took on our sin at the cross so that why? Well here's why he did it so that we the unrighteous might become the righteousness of God in him. Double imputation, great exchange. it's all there in the text. Philippians three eight
1: and nine. Yeah, doubtless, and I count all things but lost for the excellency of the knowledge of Christ Jesus, my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of and do count them but done that I may with Christ and be found in Him, not having mine own righteousness, which is of the law, but that which is through the faith of Christ, the righteousness which is of God by faith.
0: Look at that. Not having a righteousness of my own derived from the law that is derived from keeping the law, I'm not made righteous by that. Paul says he says I'm made righteous through faith in Christ, and that righteousness comes from God. Does it come from me? It comes from God. And how does it come from God? What's the instrument? Last clause of verse nine, faith. And lastly, Lily, take First Peter three eighteen. Yes, ma'am.
1: For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous to bring him to God. He was put to
0: death in the body, but made alive. Amen. The just for the unjust. Um, And why? Why did there have to be this exchange, this substitutionary death, so that Jesus might bring us sinners to God. And notice this. I don't have time to belabor it. Y'all have heard me say this many times before, but Jesus died once for all. There is no more sacrifices necessary. There is one final declarative sacrifice that Jesus made, and it was perfectly sufficient to save every person who had ever placed their faith in him. Jesus is a perfect savior. Well, Busnitz, in drawing this section to a conclusion, notes that the author of the epistle to Diognetus contrasts the sinner's total inability with the all-sufficient sacrifice and perfect righteousness of Christ. Through faith in him, believers are both forgiven and justified. They are pardoned for sin because Jesus paid their penalty on the cross and they are declared righteous by God because they have been clothed in the spotless righteousness of their Savior. Christians today should be encouraged to see a clear articulation of the gospel message from the early centuries of church history. So my friends, double imputation is not a product of the Protestant Reformation. It's right here as early as 150 to 200 AD. Uh, and as if you trace this truth throughout church history, you'll find that many godly men and women confessed The same truths that we confess from the Word of God going all the way back to the time of the apostles. Very encouraging stuff. Well, final thoughts. Um, I think it's included in your workbook. I'm just going to read the final thoughts that Booznitz notes here and then um, open up the floor for a concluding discussion question. Booznitz, concluding this section of the patristic age portion and forerunners of the faith, says this. He says, after surveying a number of the apostolic fathers, we can be encouraged to see that there were faithful men who lived after the apostles, 2 Timothy 2.2. Though neither inerrant nor authoritative, their writings demonstrate an earnest commitment both to preserve and practice the teaching of the apostles. They sought to live according to the word of God. They also sought to preserve the truth of the gospel. In the writings of Clement and Polycarp, and also in the epistle to Diognetus. We find clear articulations of the truth that salvation is by grace through faith in Christ. It is not received on the basis of works. Finally, their faithfulness was demonstrated even to the point of death. Clement, Ignatius, and Polycarp are all martyrs of Jesus Christ. They died as witnesses of Christ. Their courage and the conviction that fueled it stands as a compelling reminder for believers today to emulate their example of faithful fortitude. So having said that, by way of conclusion, as Buznitz just wrapped everything up for us, let's open up the floor for a brief discussion before we close our time together this morning. On a personal level, what stood out to you about the Apostolic Fathers? What stood out to you about the Apostolic Fathers? Let's start there. It's a two-part question. Um, We'll get to the second part of that question momentarily. But what stood out to you about the Apostolic Fathers? What was a common denominator with each of the men that we studied? Think back to Clement, to Ignatius, and to Polycarp. What did they all face Persecution, but, but even so, what was the end result of their persecution? Death, death right? Martyrs. Martyrs. They were martyrs. So how, how do you think that should impact the way we think of them, at least their example? Somebody who is willing to be fed to animals in the Roman Col- Colosseum and be put to death by sport and entertainment. Um, literally, Polycarp. When they came to arrest him, you'll recall he prayed for the men who came to arrest him and put him to death for his faith. What stands out about that? How much faith he had in God. How, much faith he had in God. How satisfied he was in Christ. How content he was. that You know, these guys believed, we go back to this verse often, but Philippians 1.21, to live is Christ, to die is gain. You know, I think these men truly believe that because there's no way you will endure as faithfully as they did in the face of death. If you don't know for sure that to die is gain, that to be with God is far greater than any comfort or any satisfaction that we can find in this life. Okay, so that stands out to us. They were all faithful in the face of death. They all died as martyrs, at least these figures that we studied together in this section. Second part of the question I wanted us to consider, though, is this. As you consider the example of these apostolic fathers that we've studied together, what lessons can we learn practically? How can we take these lessons that we have learned and apply them to our everyday lives as believers? Many of us probably aren't going to have to die for our faith. We might. I don't know that for sure, but I would say that we probably won't die for our Christian faith, if I had to guess. It's not that bad yet in America. It could turn for the worst, obviously. But um, as of right now, I think we're probably safe from that level of persecution for the foreseeable future. So what other lessons can we take away practically if death for our faith isn't one of them? Yeah, we might get made fun of for our faith, right? So it's it's important to remember that we labor and we live for the approval of God, not for the approval of man. What about doctrine? Where does doctrine come into all of this? What lessons can we learn about doctrine and about truth from Scripture? Did these people not care really about what the Bible taught. They just kind of thought, well, if we just love Jesus, that's, that's okay. That's good enough. It doesn't really matter what we believe or teach. What do you guys think? No, not at all, right? They, 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 these guys, let me tell you this. You're not going to die for your faith if you don't know who it is that you're willing to die for and what it is you're willing to die to believe in. These men and women knew without a shadow of a doubt who God was. They knew his character. They knew his gospel. They knew the basic truths of how they were expected to leave as believers. Again, just within 100 years after the apostles had died. So I think a a good takeaway for us is to recognize the importance of committing ourselves to sound doctrine, committing uh, committing ourselves to knowing God's word, Sharing it with others, right? Those are all important lessons that we can take away from the apostolic fathers. Any other thoughts that you guys have? I'm kind of just throwing you know, just throwing some corn out there, hoping that I'll get a, get a few bites that was a deer hunting uh, analogy for those of y'all who didn't know um what about how we should treat those who disagree with us whether they you know just want to argue with us or disagree with our beliefs or all the way up to the point of man like they're they're so mad at us and they disagree with us so vehemently that they're willing to put us to death for what we believe in how should we interact with such people based on what we've learned from the Apostolic fathers sigh treat them with, with grace right treat them with respect you know guys it's very easy to contend for the faith it's very easy to draw lines in the sand and and be bold and, and be passionate about truth but there's a way in which God has called us to do those things right? What's the passage we always go back to when we talk about how we should give a defense or give a reason or an explanation for our faith? What passage is that? Does anybody remember? Who wrote that passage? If you can't remember the exact chapter and verse. Paul wrote one of them. Second, 2 second Timothy 2:24 to 26. Who is the other one though? Who was the guy that was crucified upside down? Peter. Peter. Yeah. Peter, Peter was crucified upside down. And Peter, this will be the last point, but Peter, guys, we've gone to this text several times. 1 Peter 3, verse 15. Listen to what Peter writes. And he's writing to a group of Christians who are literally being put on stakes lit on fire and serving as torches at the Roman emperor's palace. Here's how he says to treat such people. Sanctify Christ as Lord in your hearts, always being ready to make a defense to everyone who asks you to give an account for the hope that is in you, yet do so with gentleness and reverence. Gentleness and respect, gentleness, and graciousness. That is, stand for the truth, be faithful in giving a reasoned explanation for what you believe and why. But when you do so, may they never say a negative thing about your character. May they see Christ in how you deal with opposition. Or as he says in just a few verses earlier, the end of chapter 2. You have been called for this purpose since Christ who suffered for you, leaving you an example to follow in his steps, who committed no sin nor was any deceit found in his mouth. And while being reviled, Christ did not revile in return. While suffering, he uttered no threats, but he kept entrusting himself to him who judges righteously. And he himself bore our sins in his body on the cross so that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. For by his wounds you were healed. For you were continually strained like sheep, but now you have returned to the shepherd and guardian of your souls. The model of Jesus, when he was being persecuted and mistreated, was he endured it with grace. And he entrusted himself to a God who always does what is right. Peter. He entrusted himself to a God who is just and always does what is right. And these apostolic fathers that we just studied together over the past few weeks, when they were literally being led away to be put to death for their faith, they entrusted themselves to a God who is just and will always do what is right. That, I believe, is one of the most important takeaways that we can have as believers living in 2022 is... Regardless of what comes about in our lives, may we entrust ourselves to God's goodness, to his wisdom, and to his providential plan that he will work all things out for our eternal good, for his glory, and that's enough. It's ultimately enough for us, no matter what happens in our lives. I pray we'll commit that to memory, and not only to memory, but that it would be firmly rooted and grounded in the depths of our hearts as believers. But with that in mind, guys, that brings us to a conclusion of this part of the ap- or of the patristic age section of forerunners of the faith. Uh, Lord willing, we're going to move into the 2nd and 3rd century next week. Look at some of the um, early apologists of the Christian faith. Uh, hope that we're going to learn a lot about apologetics and about what it looks like to um, do exactly what we just said that we need to do. To defend our faith with gentleness and respect. In the face of persecution and those who vehemently disagree with us, so looking forward to seeing what the Lord has in store for us during that study um, as we kick it off next week. Let's close in prayer and prepare our time. Ta- prepare for our time in corporate worship. Father, I thank you again, just for the privilege it is to learn from those who've gone before us. For those to learn from those who. Though not perfect, they modeled what it looks like to walk with you and to face hardship for their faith. And although we may never have to die for our faith, Father, I pray that we would live in a way that is faithful to your word, faithful to our witness for your glory, and so that others who see our lives and through and, and, and as they they hear what we believe. Lord, that they would come to saving faith as a result, that we, God, would be part of the means you use to draw them to yourself. God, help us to be diligent to put you on display in every aspect of our lives. May we never forget that we are ambassadors for your kingdom. May we view that as the highest privilege that we have, as those who've been created in your image and those whom you have redeemed out of the slave market of sin. I pray for the rest of this Lord's Day that it would be pleasing in your sight that for those who have already gone to service, I pray that they would enjoy the rest of this day with their family and loved ones and that they would find rest as they prepare for a new week and for us that are about to go and worship you corporately with the brethren here at FBC, Ed, And we ask God that our minds and our hearts and our eyes and our ears and our hearts would be attuned to you, that not a single part of our body or soul would be distracted in any way, that we would be solely focused on magnifying your great name as we sing songs of praise to you, as we pray together, and as we sit under the ministry of your word. We pray you would move in power in our midst and that we, as we leave this place, would have wind in our sails to be faithful in whatever you call us to this week. We love you, God. We commit all of this to you in the name of Christ. Amen.